0: Lauren. Mike. Lauren, when you order stuff on Amazon, how much are you thinking about Amazon as a corporation and not just an e-commerce site? Like, does that factor into your buying?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. And I would say, yeah, like increasingly so. I, I think I pause a little bit now when I'm about to impulse buy something. And I think, you know, like, I wonder what the toll of this is, like to the people working there, or to the environment, and, and do I really need this thing? Do you think about it?
0: Uh, no. To be totally honest, I am a trained monkey. I just click the button and then I start waiting for the thing to arrive at my door. But that's what Amazon wants. And that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today uh, on today's show. We're going to talk about Amazon. What
1: better way to get to the heart of Amazon than to bring on Brad Stone? Indeed.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired.
1: And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: And we are also joined by journalist and author Brad Stone. Welcome, Brad. Hi, guys. Great to have you here. Brad is a longtime Bloomberg reporter, and he's the author of not one but two books about Amazon. Brad's first book about Amazon is called The Everything Store, and it came out in 2013. The new book came out this very week, and it's called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. You can actually read an excerpt from the book that we published this week on Wired. In the second half of the show, we're going to talk about Amazon's founder, CEO, and soon to not be CEO, Jeff Bezos. But for this first half, there will, of course, be some Bezos talk, but we're mostly going to concentrate on Amazon as a company. Now, Brad... I assume you felt the need to write a whole second book about Amazon just because so much has happened since the publication of your first book in 2013. The company has gone off in all these interesting directions in recent years, groceries, movies, TV shows, Alexa. You had some catching up to do
2: yeah or or that or i'm a glutton for punishment because i gotta (laughs) say like reporting trying to dig dig up the secrets of this intensely secretive um dominating uh company is exhausting and um you know and but i'm like a lot of journalists you know i'm drawn to a good story and i'm a business journalist i'm drawn to a good business story and in 2017 when i started on this project yeah, the, the Kindle company had become the Alexa company. The $100 billion company had become, you know, at that point, the $800 or $900 billion company. And Bezos had transformed almost within front of our eyes and from this geeky tech guy to, uh, I don't know, Vin Diesel or, or uh, The Rock or, I don't know, the, the nerd <laughs> version of that. Um, and then, so I started on it. And while I was researching the book, we had HQ2. We had uh, Bezos's National Enquirer scandal. Uh, we had the antitrust investigation in the big tech at Amazon, and then the pandemic. And it really, you know, was you know in some ways fortuitous timing for me uh, because here was a company becoming so big and dominating that a lot of people were started starting, as Lauren said earlier, to kind of ask questions about the impact. And then, of course, Bezos resigns as CEO right as I'm about to finish the manuscript, and it's really the end of an era. And so this is a book about the last 10 years and Amazon's growth from a, a tech uh, juggernaut into kind of a global empire.
1: And you were thinking, I'm never going to be finished writing this book, as all of these things kept happening. I'm well, sure. I was did, thinking,
2: did... Bo- boy, this is juicier than I thought. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you end up dumpster diving for this book?
2: No, Lauren, those days are are well in the past for me. Um, but, you know, the tabloid story was super interesting and You know, a kind of hall of mirrors full of questionable people with questionable motives and a lot of at least legal research to figure out what the heck happened.
1: So we're going to get to some of that personal drama in the second half of the program today. Uh, But let's talk about Amazon products, because as we've noted now, it's not just, you know, the online bookstore or even just an e-commerce platform anymore. It, it It's a multi-layered, complex company. Um, there's Amazon Web Services, of course. From a product perspective, we've seen the emergence of things like Alexa, uh, the voice assistant that most people know at this point. I'm sure it's going to trigger a bunch of Alexas for whoever's listening right now. Um, Amazon's private label business, Amazon Basics, um, which also they've you know, been scrutinized for because sometimes it seems like Amazon is making products that they've already measured to be successful that are made by third parties. Um, and then we've seen Amazon enter a bunch of new markets through strategic acquisitions. What would you say, aside from just the standard e-commerce business, is the most interesting business you've seen emerge from Amazon in recent years?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think you listed a couple of them, um, but I'll, I'll select one that, that you didn't just describe, um, which is the Go Store. Um, which is a, still a big question mark, and this is people might know the cashier cashierless. Uh, they look like 7-Elevens now. Amazon's beginning to uh, bring the technology into big supermarkets, and this is the idea that when you take something off a off a shelf, um, you know computers will be watching you. Computer vision algorithms will tabulate what you've taken and automatically charge you. And the reason that's so interesting is that. Um, physical retail is ninety percent of all retail people prefer to go into supermarkets um, you know to to uh, pick up a piece of fruit and to figure out what they want to eat that week and amazon if it can succeed in its very amazon like way of trying to use technology to wedge into a new industry you know this the one point six trillion dollar company can be who knows how big now it's interesting because I get into that in one of the chapters and Amazon and Bezos kind of led this effort as he does a, a lot of these new things at Amazon. They kind of determined that the pain point that they could solve for was waiting in line for, at the checkout. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't mind that. Um, you know, yeah, you check your email. Um, but the you know, type A disruptors at Amazon figured they're going to put a couple million dollars worth of tech into the market to try to figure it out. And it'll be interesting to see if that's successful.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think one of the first go experiences I had was in Seattle when I was there for another Amazon event and Brad, I'm sure you were there too. And um and I remember thinking, "Oh, there's the go store. Let me go check it out." So, in the early days, you might recall people trying to like Put, take things off the shelf and then put them on a different shelf to see if you could sort of trip up the system um, or what would happen if you took something and just like tucked it in your bag and then walked out with it with the compute you know computer vision technology work and like and consistently it seems like you know, no matter how hard you tried to, to trip up this cashierless little grocery mart, um, the tech was picking up what you were buying. It was kind of incredible. Uh, so, it, like on the one hand, it's like, oh wow, this is like really cool, futuristic stuff. And then, and then on the other hand, sometimes there just like isn't really the greatest practical application for that. That's to right. some extent that's voice control still too, right? Like it's actually kind of remarkable what it can do. But at the same time, it's like I use voice control to set my alarm. Right. <laughs> that's how <laughs> far into the future we are.
2: Um- well, like a couple of little things that you, you, you just said uh, got me thinking, you know, one, they, they do employ an army, an invisible army of contractors to sometimes review when the system inside the ghost store uh, makes mistakes. There is a wizard behind the curtain. But the second thing is that and this is going to sound like a trivial observation, but the sandwiches in the ghost store are horrible. They're like nothing that you can't get from a 7-Eleven or a gas station. But why I think that's interesting is because the whole ghost store experiment has been a very expensive trial, technology trial. And Amazon is setting this up for bigger and better applications. And I do think now moving those into Whole Foods-sized grocery stores, they're calling them Amazon Fresh or licensing the technology to, to airport kiosks or other stores. This could be, if it works, a big opportunity for Amazon. And people described it to me as I was researching the book as the most expensive project in Amazon's history. Right up there probably with the 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 black eye they got in China over many years and probably bigger than Alexa, just in terms of pure R&D costs. And it just embodies, you know, Bezos's willingness to try to do hard things. He has a vision, he pursues it and the patience to do it over many years. That project started in 2012 and now it's almost 10 years later and they really probably don't have much to show for it. Now the pandemic has slowed them down a little bit but it is really this unique appetite to do things over the long term and to lose
0: money for a long time. Right. Uh, speaking of experiments and losing money, uh, the Seattle trip that that Lauren just referred to, uh, which uh, I'm sure you made as well, was for a launch event, right? Now Amazon has these big, Uh, media events where they launch a bunch of products like a gazillion gadgets all at once I think on that particular trip Lauren counted around 40 products launched in one day Uh, we've seen Amazon do this year after year what's the strategy here with basically carpet bombing our homes with Amazon gadgets
2: was that Lauren was that the microwave uh, uh, yeah I'm trying to
1: remember because there was one year where they actually tallied up more than that like probably closer to 60 or 70 products, but in that tally, they were counting every single little iterative software update too. And I think there have just been events where from a pure hardware perspective, there have been dozens of gadgets launched that might've been the microwave year.
2: Yeah. I mean, Michael, to answer your question, it's, um, it's this idea, this vision or ambition that Alexa will be pervasive, that it'll be a platform layer, um, inside all of the products in our home, um, you know, a kind of invisible artificial intelligence that we can summon, like the Star Trek computer, uh, anytime we want. And I think we need to say that it really hasn't been successful. You know, the microwave kind of flopped, the the Alexa glasses, uh, I've never seen anybody wearing them, Um, you know, the wristwatch feels like a poor imitator of, uh, of a Fitbit or certainly an Apple watch. Um, and, and the app ecosystem that Apple developed with the iPhone on an iOS, you know, Amazon has these skills on Alexa and they're very hard to summon. And certainly there haven't been many businesses built on the Alexa platform. So it represents an ambition. Um, and yet I think even though by any measure, Alexa has been successful, probably financially because they sell a lot of devices and certainly culturally because it's ushered us all into an age of voice computing, it hasn't really realized the vision of this ubiquitous... AI, Star Trek computer that Bezos had when he first drew the sketch on the whiteboard in 2011.
1: Yeah, and that's the story that we ran on Wired.com this week, Um, the inside story of how Alexa was built. We encourage everyone to go to Wired to check that out. And then of course, to buy Brad's book. Um, One of the questions I had about that was, you mentioned in this excerpt, uh, how, um, you know, Amazon was doing this because they wanted kind of their own software to be in people's homes and in people's lives. And I think about that a lot in the sense that they really don't have a mobile operating system. They they, they did make a phone at one point. Um, it was it was called the fire phone, it was a failure. It, it didn't really work out. And so I kind of wonder if like that strategy of getting Alexa into everyone's homes was driven by this this long-term vision of like this is actually where the voice assistant is going to be most valuable, or if it was driven by The fact that they didn't have control over devices, they didn't have control ultimately what the native voice assistant would be on iOS or Android. And so they had to strategically think elsewhere.
2: I mean, this is back in 2011. And, you know, the Fire Phone was also a kind of incipient project back then. So they weren't, you know, they didn't see themselves uh, as sort of blocked off from the potential mobile ecosystem. Um, They were developing tablets at the time with the same Fire OS that is now kind of limping along. But I think it was more extending the the advantage they had in cloud computing. And, you know, Bezos was asking everyone inside the company, what are you doing for AWS? And he was sort of thinking about, well, could you create a consumer device with its brains in the cloud that extended the advantage Amazon had into the consumer world? And at the same time, his assistant, Greg Hart at the time, is uh, showing him Google Voice, and they're probably demoing some things at the time uh, for the Fire Phone, um, you know, which also needed a voice assistant. They knew Apple had acquired Siri, um, or at least, you know, Siri was a popular app at the time. And Bezos uh, comes back to his executives with an email, we should build a $20 computer whose brains are in the cloud that is completely controlled by your voice. And so it was this combination of exploit AWS, Um, You know, bring something else into people's lives, maybe instead of clicking on Amazon once a week or once a month, it can be part of people's lives, Um, invent something new in consumer technology, but it was developed alongside the Fire Phone. So it was not seen as sort of a replacement or a strategic alternative. Uh, If anything, they invested more and had higher hopes for the Fire Phone. And because it failed, maybe they were able to take a little bit more risks and invest more and advertise on the Super Bowl and do all this other stuff with Alexa that
0: maybe they wouldn't otherwise have done. Um, I'm particularly interested in Amazon's private label business, uh, both Amazon Basics and those so-called in-store brands, brands that are sold exclusively on Amazon that Amazon actually owns, though that fact is not made obvious. How did this part of the business grow? And how much did you uncover about how much Amazon is using third-party seller data to inform its own business moves? Right. That's the big question. Well... You know, this was not a unique page
2: from the retail playbook, right? You go into Costco and it's all Kirkland, you know, Walmart and and Target and Walgreens. They have their own private labels, and so as Amazon build its uh, consumables business uh, and it's food business, you know, they start to think about, well, should they get into this, uh, arena as well? And the early initiatives are kind of hilariously ham handed. Um, you know, they've got diapers that leak and that get terrible reviews. Um, you know, they've got, um, they've got, I don't even, the names are crazy. Solomo and, um, you know, they make, they come up with all these names. They have, I actually describe in the book, they have a private label, uh, that is called Bloom Street that Bezos reviews and rejects after they've done a ton of work on it because he doesn't want a Kirkland style brand. He wants like unique individual brands that maybe aren't explicitly tied to Amazon, to your point, Michael. Um, And then Here's the key to Amazon, it's decentralized, okay? So managers are like little CEOs over their own fiefdoms and they're given crazy goals. And if they don't meet their goals, well, maybe they're not on an upward trajectory. And the managers of these private label brands you know, have to achieve every, every year. And one of the ways they do that at the time or early days, 2015, 16, 17 is they go look to see what is selling well on the marketplace. If you have a, a nutritional supplement uh, seller and there's a million skews, you know, of, of, uh, of, um, Enzyme, well, how does Amazon know what to private label, and those sellers and and you know I, I got documents and I talked to former executives. you know the cookie jar was open, even though Amazon had a policy against doing that, and they they looked at the data and you know fast forward to today, and Bezos has asked about that in front of the House Antitrust subcommittee, and they say they 're going to evaluate it and examine it and investigate it, and they assure everyone that it doesn 't happen and can 't happen, but look, it did. Um, The caveat is that the private label business at Amazon is still kind of small, still kind of sad. Um, The 365 brand that they got from Whole Foods, of course, is a a big asset. Um, But it's funny. They're still sort of finding their way there. And I kind of think that it's because they are geeky technologists that when it comes to, you know, creating something, a brand that has meaning for consumers like 365 or Kirkland, it's sort of foreign to them. They're still trying to figure it out. So, you know, we can point to the advantages they have if if a law was passed and private labels became illegal for at least a company like Amazon to do it probably wouldn't
0: slow them down that much so you got to kind of put it in context all right we're going to take a break and then when we come back we'll have more with Brad Stone welcome back Our guest this week is journalist and author Brad Stone. Brad's new book is called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. You can also read an exclusive excerpt from Brad's book on Wired, which we published earlier this week. So how has Jeff Bezos changed or evolved as an executive in the time between your two books, the early 2010s and today? So
2: I'll tell you a story from uh, from Amazon Unbound, which is a little Godfather 2-ish in terms of it's mostly a continuation of the story, uh, the last 10 years of Amazon, but there, there are some flashbacks. And there's a story that I tell, I think it's in Chapter 6, of it's a flashback. The early years, like 2007, it's, a, it's an FBA meeting, Fulfillment by Amazon. And a finance executive presents Bezos with a paper, and he, you know, these are six-page papers full of data in the appendix, and he's scanning it, and he somehow points out or identifies a mathematical error in the appendix. And he says to this, to this uh, female uh, finance executive, Cynthia Williams, if I can't trust this number, how can I trust anything in this paper? And he tears it up, and he throws it down the table, and he walks out. I mean, can you imagine? And she describes going home, you know, basically thinking her, her career is done. She can't believe she made the mistake, opening a bottle of wine, emailing Bezos to apologize. He writes back, you know, he's cooled down. He says, you know, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't made the same kind of error. So that's the old Bezos. And and the, the books are filled with these kinds of anecdotes. And it's very jobsy and his sort of un- un his. Lack of maybe empathy, right? And his, the, that weird gene that he doesn't have and his ability to kind of cut an employee down at the knees. But you fast forward to today, and I don't know if he got a leader, leadership counselor or he realized that you can't, you kind of can't get away with it anymore. He does still have the high standards. He does still send the ants scurrying and panic around him uh, when he makes a proclamation or passes an edict or asks a question that somebody can't answer. But there is a little bit at least at Amazon, of a softer touch. Maybe at Blue Origin, he's, he's let the, uh, the demons out a couple of times. But um, I think he's under, he understands now, maybe because of some of these depictions, that um, you know, he needs to inspire more than
0: intimidate.
1: So one of the big stories in the book um, that also ran on Bloomberg.com as an excerpt is the story about Jeff Bezos's personal drama that has unfolded in recent years and how he essentially wielded his power to squash what could have been an even more damaging story or you know how he beat the tabloids, as you put it in the story. So walk us through what happened and also how his ownership of The Washington Post became something of a complexifier in this extremely personal saga.
2: Right. Well, uh, let Let's assume since we can't spend like the hour it would take to recount the whole sordid ordeal that people will have some recollection of the basics right bezos is a married man at least the world believes that in 2018 he um <laughs> it starts carrying on with uh, a married woman uh, lauren sanchez who is married to the very powerful head of the endeavor talent agency Uh, Early 2019, he announces his divorce on Twitter, and the next day, the National Enquirer publishes uh, details of the affair, and all of our jaws collectively hit the floor, and we just can't believe that the most disciplined person in the world um, has been, you know, caught in this dalliance and embarrassed by a tabloid. He's been sexting. He's been sexting. Right. There are talks of explicit photographs. I, I think this is a family podcast, so we'll be careful uh, and <laughs> how we describe the tawdry details. But then fast forward maybe about a month or a couple of weeks, and he posts this uh, blog to Medium where he accuses the Enquirer of extorting him. And he and he and he also uh, well he says that they are trying to force uh, Bezos and his camp to drop the insinuation that um, the 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 story was politically motivated um, because the inquiry is owned by AMI which was all involved in the catch and kill allegations against Donald Trump and they have a non-prosecution agreement with the Southern District of New York and they're not supposed to get up to to any uh, mischief anymore so they're trying to get the Bezos camp to stop. Uh, to stop these insinuations. And, um, you know, they, they describe what they have in their possession, which they were given by Lauren Sanchez's brother, Michael Sanchez. And Bezos kind of wraps himself up in the Washington Post and says, these are my political enemies and their motives are still to be better understood. And what I conclude in the book and in the chapter on this in the book is that it really wasn't about the Post um, the, the Saudis might have hacked his phone. We kind of really don't know for sure. But essentially, it was a much simpler story of the wealthiest person in the world, um, you know, making himself into an object of tabloid fascination. And but he, you know, but he won that episode. Um, the cover of Business Week, uh, where the excerpt grand said, you know, Bezos wins, and it was because it was kind of a masterful turn of events, and he exploited the weaknesses of the National Enquirer with its uh, arrangement with the the prosecutors in in New York, and um, and kind of turned the tables on them and published their emails, and um, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that you know a billionaire, um, you know, was. Uh, a a major tabloid newspaper tried to embarrass him and he got the editor fired and turned the tables. It was like a jujitsu
0: move that even today uh, can hardly be uh, believed. You know, sticking with the controversies for a bit, uh, Amazon, just like all of the other large, powerful tech companies uh, has not been immune to criticism because of cultural and social issues, right? There's the company's impact on the environment with all of its shipping, uh, its treatment of its warehouse workers, its union busting efforts. From your reporting, did you get the sense that any of these things sort of sit heavily with Jeff Bezos? And do they affect the culture of the company at all? No doubt. He he is
2: incredibly attuned to criticism of the company and as of himself. I mean, some of it is tactical, like he doesn't want people to hesitate when they click the buy now button. But, you know, I think that um, they I mean, arguably have kind of been late to making adjustments in their fulfillment centers. A couple of years ago, they they moved their hourly wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, We're talking in in a week where they announced they were hiring 75,000 more employees and who are going to have a $17 an hour wage. But in that last shareholder letter he wrote, um, which might be the last investor letter he ever writes, considering he's retiring as CEO, he talked about wanting to be the world's like best employer and how he was going to start devoting more of his time to improving that employee relationship. Now, look, it's 25 years into the company. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it shows that maybe instead of leading, as they like to believe that they are, they're kind of reading, right? They're seeing all the criticisms and and uh and they're and they're realizing that it it poses a kind of existential threat to the company if people believe they're a negative force in the world so they're they're looking at it they take it seriously uh you know you you compare his reputation to elon's and it's remarkable uh you know the the halo that is over elon's head and the almost uh opposite you know that um when people kind of consider jeff and his public image but um I think that's why he's kind of starting to take philanthropy seriously and try to improve that legacy as well.
1: It's so interesting that you say that because I thought you were going to go in the opposite direction and say, you know, if you compared him to Elon, Jeff has like a glowing image compared to Elon. <laughs> but I guess oh, am tall. I no, right? No. Do you
2: disagree? I mean, I feel like Elon, <laughs> uh, despite some of the Twitter missteps, you know, he he goes on SNL and it's a cultural moment. You can't even imagine Bezos doing that. I feel like increasingly he is seen as a little bit of a, of a economic, you know, um, well, predator is a strong word, but certainly in some corners for sure. Um, and Elon as the, as the swashbuckling space guy.
1: All right. And speaking of space, I mean, Bezos, you know, also runs Blue Origin, a suborbital space flight company. Um, and we should probably talk about that, as well as the fact that he has stepped down as CEO of Amazon. Um, so I guess two-pronged question, what does the future of Amazon look like with Andy Jassy at the helm? And what, you know, why is Bezos so interested in space? It seems like he's going to be spending more of his time with Blue Origin.
2: Right. Well, space was always a personal passion of his. And he gave his uh, his uh, valedictorian speech in high school about it. And he started Blue Origin in 2000 before SpaceX. And he just thought he could go slowly And Elon came around to SpaceX and started getting all this government money to to scale the company. And then Bezos thought, you know, why am I spending a billion dollars of my own money? And now they compete for space contracts. And SpaceX has been winning everything and Blue Origin has been protesting everything. And I think it's created some dysfunction at Blue Origin. And so he's going to have to, in his newly available free time, go back there and maybe Devote the kind of attention to it that Elon devotes to SpaceX. So there's a really entertaining rivalry uh, that we'll be following for a couple of years there. And then, Lauren, to answer the other question, you know, Andy Jassy ran the cloud business at Amazon. He is one of those uh, Jeff disciples who who was a shadow, you know, his technical assistant, but who has now really evolved into a formidable leader in his own right. And AWS is a fifty billion dollar run rate a year business and um and it's 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 like he's a he's a logical choice to succeed bezos the difference is that he's not an innovator or at least an inventor in the way that bezos is he's not going to be drawing the next alexa on a whiteboard right or coming up with something out of the blue at least i don't think so i mean he's an mba and an operator and so You know, Bezos says he'll stick around to to keep working on new things, but if he ever does really step aside, who will replace that function at at Amazon is a really good question for uh, people who watch the company.
1: And to follow up on Mike's earlier question, amazon with jassy at the helm does the culture change at all mm. what what is his style as a leader i just you know i do wonder if the company will become something of a friendlier place for people to right. to work at which we could only hope
2: i i think he has a little bit more of the empathy gene than bezos does so perhaps um It does. I think he's a lot more attuned to, um, you know, the sort of diversity uh, challenges that Amazon has, Um, you know, the work, the workplace pressure that it's under to improve its relationship with employees. He presents a sort of humbler target also for regulators and lawmakers. You know, Bezos is the richest guy in the world, and he's just not going to get a lot of sympathy sitting uh, in Congress uh, now. So I think we probably will expect uh, Jassy to be there. They'll probably still ask for Bezos. Um, and and so, you know, so will will the culture change? That'll have to be a slow process because Bezos has, like, finely tuned the mechanics and the clockwork right down to, like, the, the review process um, the, the leadership principles. So, and, you know, and we'll also see how much leeway Bezos gives Jassy to make those kinds of changes because he's still going to be the loudest voice in the conference room. Right. And he'll still be
0: around. Um, I, I suspect if there is change, it'll be gradual. All right, well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll move into our recommendations. All right. Welcome back. We're here with Brad Stone. Now, Brad, you may have heard that this is the part of the show where we recommend to our listeners a thing that you have been enjoying that you would urge them to check out. It can be uh, a physical object. It can be a piece of media. It can be uh, a, a book about Amazon. Please don't recommend your own book. But what would you like to recommend? Okay, well, um, I have a colleague
2: at Bloomberg named Jason Schreier, who is uh, an enormously talented journalist. He covers the video game beat for us. And we had the sort of coincidental, maybe misfortune, of releasing books on the same day. And his is called Press Reset Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. And I have been like gobbling this thing up at night after I'm done, you know, self promoting. And it's like this look inside the video game industry, um, you know, everything from like the demise of small video game studios like Irrational Games or how Kurt Schilling, the, the famous uh, former baseball player turned conservative uh, gadfly, tried to like develop World of Warcraft and, and buy the company that made it. And that was, it's like the seedy underbelly of the video game industry. And it's like, it's such an entertaining read. Um, I've got, you know, a PS4 I need to upgrade, I guess. Um, and we also have a Nintendo uh, that we play with the kids and learning the stories of this and what goes on and how, difficult and challenging these the culture of the video game industry is, it's like a a wild revelation. And it's a book that I recommend to anybody who's interested in video games or the tech industry or how corporate cultures develop and can go wrong. Nice. The title one more time. Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Awesome.
1: Nice. Did he consider naming it Blow on the Cartridge?
0: I will have to ask him that. Yeah, <laughs> um, Lauren, what's what's your recommendation?
1: My recommendation is a Substack from the writer Anne Helen Peterson. Now, some of you might remember that we've had Anne Helen on this podcast before. She joined us last year to talk about her book can't even which is about millennial burnout and we brought her on to give us advice for how well not to feel so burnt out and she was a wonderful guest and she's also just an excellent writer so i now pay five dollars a month for access to her newsletter culture study which is all about culture particularly internet culture but also like other really interesting fascinating topics as well and uh, bonus, if you subscribe to Culture Study, you also get access to this new Discord server that a bunch of fellow writers have started. Um, writers include Casey Newton, Eric Newcomer, Nick Kwa, Delia Kai, Charlie Warzel, and of course, Anne Helen. Um, this is a very writer on writer podcast that we're sharing with you today. And some of these names might not be familiar to you, but some of you might know who these folks are. Um, anyway, it's a cool thing that they're doing. To, to try to just, you know, run their own business as independent writers. And um, I recommend supporting it. So subscribe to Culture Study and then you can access the Discord.
0: What's their Discord platform called?
1: Side Channel, because we at Wired already had Back Channel.
0: That's right. You know <laughs> they wanted to call it Back Channel. You I mean,
1: who they... wouldn't want to call it Back Channel? Mike, what's your recommendation?
0: Would you believe it? I am also going to recommend a Substack newsletter.
1: Oh, my gosh. Substack taking over the world.
0: For now, anyway.
1: Brad's going to write his next book on Substack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to get the chapters. <laughs> um, so the newsletter that I want to recommend, it's a music nerd newsletter. It's called Echo Locator, and it's written by a, uh, a lifelong uh, music journalist named Tom Moon. Uh, Tom has, uh, you know, reviewed albums uh, and he's written about uh, musical genres. He's also the author of a book that you've probably heard cited everywhere. It's called 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. So the Echolocator newsletter is dedicated to finding uh, this sort of obscure and forgotten parts of the music world that are hiding in plain sight in the streaming era. So in recent weeks, there has been a whole essay about uh, the unknown, quote-unquote, unknown remixes of Fresh by Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, There has been uh, one about uh, the Detroit instrumentals that came out of the Motown era. Uh, There was one about, there was a really great rant about uh, Spotify. He's he's like anti-Spotify. The funny thing is, every... Newsletter that comes out has a Spotify playlist attached. So if you're interested in going a little bit further into the world of music recommendations and you prefer to get your music recommended to you by a person in the know rather than an algorithm that is guessing what you might like, then this is a great way to take that path because uh, Tom is a good writer. Uh, his newsletters are very short, and there is a link to get right into what he's talking about at the top of every of every one. So that's my recommendation: Echo Locator, and it's free. Excellent. All right, that is our show for this week. Bradstone, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Brad. Come back anytime when you write that third book. Brad's new book is called Amazon Unbound: Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Read it on your Kindle. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Goodbye.